Please turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul's commended these believers. He's defended himself. He He's expressed his deep love and concern for these Christians in Thessalonica. He, he's encouraged them, and then Paul prayed for them. In chapter 4, Paul began to practically show the Thessalonian Christians how they are to live out their faith, and so he told them to abound. He told them to walk well and to walk worthy. He told them to be well-pleasing to God, and he told them to pursue a growing, sanctified life more and more and more. Paul continues to talk about that in today's passage, and just for context, we're going to begin in verse 3. Verse 3. This is what we looked at last week, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now here in these few verses for today, verses 6 through 8, the context reminds us of the fact which is this. That God's will for all of us in Christ is our sanctification. This is indeed God's desired will for our lives as Christians, the Thessalonian Christians and us in Christ today. And while we can reject God's desired will, wisdom says to abound in doing this. Because Christians are those who love God, and who want to glorify Him more and more and more with our fading lives. And an abounding, sanctified life pleases and glorifies God. And it also gives us the most joy in return as we pursue what we were created to do, to glorify God. Now remember, the word sanctification means holy or set apart. The idea of sanctification is a separation from the secular and the sinful and a setting apart for a sacred purpose and for God's special use. So the word means holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness, purity, and a set-apartedness from everything that is sinful, dirty, marred, and stained by sin. Now here, Paul's clearly talking about progressive sanctification, which is a lifelong process of growing in our practical holiness for the glory of God. This is something that every believer must be earnestly pursuing. And the good news is that we can grow in our holiness more and more when we use God's means of growing in holiness and of fighting sin. So, because God is holy, we too are to be holy. And because we love God, we also love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And God hates sin and He loves holiness in His children. And so, this is what we passionately pursue. So, love for God is what compels us, and His pleasure is what motivates us, and we're not going to be content with where, where we're at in this life, not ever, because perfect Christ-likeness and perfect holiness is the aim, and that's not going to be reached until we go to glory, so 
we continue to pursue in this life. Please remember that you can indeed grow. You can take spiritual ground. Why? Because God has given us everything that we need as Christians to live a growing and godly life more and more and more. See, He's given us His Spirit who lives in us and who empowers us with His divine strength. And we're going to see that at the end of the sermon. He's also given us His Word, which is living, active, fully adequate, and powerful for salvation and life. He's given us prayer, which is powerful and effective. And He's given us each other for encouragement, growth, and strength. So nothing is lacking. The question is, will you use the means that God has given to you? And that's on you. That's up to you. Will you use the means He's given? Note that sanctification includes every aspect of our lives, your actions, your thoughts, your language, your attitudes, your relationships, what you look at, what you dwell on, how you spend your time, how you drive, how you work, how you love, how you are as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, and so on. Everything. It includes everything. How are you doing? <laughs> Last time Paul got specific about this, and he said that a sanctified believer will abstain from sexual immorality. He will control himself and his lusts. And he will look different than the world around him that doesn't know Christ, of course. Of course. Because we now belong to God. Okay, what else? Let, let's look. Paul tells us in verses 6 through 8 a few more things. Four more practical ways to be sanctified. First, don't take advantage of or defraud your brother. It's very interesting because this is clearly within the context, again, of sexual sin. And the words, in this matter... In the middle of verse 6, show that to us. What does it tell us? It tells us that sexual immorality defrauds your brother. Okay, who's my brother? Brother is often uh, used to refer to fellow believers, both men and women. But the term can also refer to every human being, to the universal brotherhood of humanity, both men and women included. And that's what most believe this term is referring to here. That when you commit sexual immorality, which refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage, look, you defraud not just yourself, but you defraud others as well. Take advantage of means to step over or to go beyond. The idea here is to step over a boundary, to go beyond the prescribed limits, to go over the line, to go too far. And that's what sexual sin does. It exceeds the limits of what God's commands for you are, of what God demands of you, and that is a very serious thing to exceed those limits. Defraud means to greedily take something for personal gain and pleasure at someone else's expense. It means to selfishly attempt to gain more at all costs and by all means while disregarding others and the rights of others. The call here is to never do that. And look, sexual immorality does that, which not only includes physical acts, but sinful thoughts as well. See, your spouse alone is the, the only one who belongs to you because you belong to each other and no one else does. Not that other person, not that person in the picture, not that person in the video or in the movie, not the person next to you who isn't your spouse. See, when we sin sexually, we are seeking, we are not seeking the highest good of others, not in any way. Neither the person we sin with, nor the person that we sinfully fantasize about, nor the spouse or parent of any of those people. I mean, it's certainly not Christian love 
that motivates us in any way, it's sinful desire, it's selfish desire that motivates us when we do that. But that's not what we in Christ are to be about. We're people who deeply are moved by love for others and Christian love, uh, Christians love people, right? We don't use people. We love people, we don't use people, and sexual immorality sinfully uses people. Now look, sex before marriage robs you because it's sinful and it does your soul no good whatsoever. It also robs your future spouse of something that's supposed to belong to that person alone. And it also robs the future partner of the person that you defrauded. Also, adultery is an obvious violation of the rights of another, specifically the person that you committed adultery with, along with the spouse of that person and your own spouse. That's not for you as a Christian. On top of that, we find that in Leviticus 18, which is a chapter where God instructed Israel on the matter of sexual immorality. Look, the idea is that a person may not uncover the nakedness of another person who's not their spouse. Should be self-evident. The idea is this, that the nakedness of an individual belongs to their spouse and to no one else, and therefore, it's a violation of God's law to give that nakedness to anyone else or for anyone else to take it. So also is it a violation to look lustfully at another person who is fully clothed who isn't your spouse too. No, Christians are those who battle against those lusts. On top of that, lust and sinful thoughts of the mind not only defraud you, but it hinders your walk with the Lord and it has a hardening effect on your soul, but it also defrauds the person that you're sin- sinfully lusting after. Yes, it does. You say, no, I'm, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm, I'm not hurting anyone. Well, you're certainly hurting yourself. So there's that. And you're objectifying another soul who is made in the image of God for your own sinful pleasure. And that's a wretched thought. I mean, that person is someone else's daughter or son. That person is someone else's spouse or future spouse. That person isn't to be sinfully used in that way. That, that's wretched. On top of all that, sexual immorality isn't just a sin against yourself and others, but it's also a sin against God, and, and it highly offends God. Joseph recognized this principle when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and he responded with these words in Genesis 39.9. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? See? God. So while sexual sin defrauds yourself and while sexual sin defrauds you, it ultimately is against the God whom you claim to love, the God whom you claim that you want to glorify. So we find that sexual sin disregards God, it ignores His holiness, it spurns His will, it it defies His command, it rejects His love, it flaunts His grace and His mercy, and it is indeed something to be hated, spurned, abstained from, and battled fiercely against and again. It's not just talking about adultery. It's talking about all sexual activity outside of marriage, which also includes sinful lust, looking at things you shouldn't look at, and so on. Not just physical acts, but sins of the mind, too. Please don't defraud your brother or sister like this. No, flee these things. That's the call. Look what Paul adds at the end of verse 6. The Lord will avenge, is the avenger of all such So we also forewarned you and testified. What does that mean? 
It means that we better take what he says here seriously. The Lord is the avenger of all such, and that means that there's a price to be paid for these sins. It means that God will judge those who commit these sins. All right, what does that then mean? Well, there's two kinds of judgment, right? The judgment for the Christian and the judgment for the non-Christian, and both are to be taken very seriously. Now remember, everyone lives in a certain atmosphere. For the Christian, our atmosphere is Christ. For the non-Christian, their atmosphere is sin and rebellion, whether they recognize that or not. Christians are heading one direction and have one aim, Him, Christ. Non-Christians are heading the other direction, hell. And whether they, again, whether they understand that or not, that is indeed their aim, their direction. We are, we are in Christ as Christians. Non-Christians are in the flesh. Our practice is seeking to please God. Their practice is self and sin. So look, for the non-Christian, they will be judged for their sin for fornication and adultery and sexual immorality, as well as for every other sin, right? Many scriptures hammer that warning home. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unbelievers won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Many other scriptures give us the same warning. Sinners... Apart from Christ, without Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is holy. We're all sinful, right? Sin separates us from holy God. Sin bans us from Him, and sin bans us from heaven, and the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's why Jesus, God the Son, came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose up from the dead. Why? So that undeserving sinners like us could be forgiven and go to heaven. Jesus, see, Jesus is our only hope. For on the cross, God punished Jesus for the sin of every person who would ever believe, so the believer would then be fitted for heaven and be saved by grace, saved from eternal wrath. See, every sin in history will and must be punished. So either Jesus was punished for the believer's sin on the cross, or the unbeliever will be punished for his own sin in hell. It's one or the other. See, you've either surrendered to Christ in repentant faith, and you're saved, you have heaven, or you reject Christ, and you're condemned, and you have hell. And all who live in the atmosphere of sin, immorality, adultery, any other sin, the judgment is the result, separation from God forever, eternal wrath. That said, Christians too will be judged. See, if we aren't watching and praying, if we aren't on guard, true Christians can indeed fall into sexual sin. And for those that do that, what's it say? God is the avenger. God will judge them. How? Well, His discipline, which you don't want. Okay? You don't want. True Christians are going to heaven, yes. But for those who give in to sexual sin, there's a price to be paid for that. And this is a warning. There are consequences for this, see? And even if you've repented and and God forgives you for your sin in this area, there still are ongoing ramifications of it. Ask King David, whose son died, and who had many other ramifications for that sin as well. I mean, look, the thing that stands out when we think about David isn't that David was a man after God's own heart. Not really... What's the thing that stands out when we think about David? Bathsheba. Look, sexual sin 
It, it, it affects you. It scars you. It has consequences, even for the unrepentant Christian. So the warning is to take heed to yourself. And if you're messing around, looking at junk, letting lust take over, testing the sinful waters, hey, heed the warning now and run away before it bites you and before God disciplines you, which is a kindness on his part, but a painful one at that. J.C. Ryle gives this warning. Sexual sin is the sin that leaves deeper scars upon the soul than any other sin that a man can commit. It's a sin that destroys thousands of young men in every age and has even overthrown a few of the saints of God in the past. Samson and David are fearful proofs. It's the sin that man dares to smile at and smooths over using the terms thrills, love, uncontrollable passions, and natural desires. But it's the sin that the devil rejoices over. And it's the sin that God abhors and declares he will judge. Flee from sexual immorality if you love life. Did you hear that? Flee from sexual immorality if you love life. Free, flee from the opportunity of it. From the company of those who might draw you into it. From the places where you might be tempted to do it. Flee from talking about it. It's one of the things that ought not even be hinted about in conversation. You can't even touch black grease without getting your hands dirty. Flee from the thoughts of it. Resist them. Destroy them. Pray against them. Make any sacrifice rather than give way to them. Imagination is a hotbed where this sin is too often hatched. Guard your thoughts and there will be little fear about your actions. He's right. He's right. Let this slip. Danger. Serious. Danger. Note that again, you you never sin alone, right? Your sin affects others around you. So the question is, do you really want to do that to yourself? Do you really want to do that to your spouse, to your, to your kids, to your family, to your God? Sin has a way of finding us out and coming to light eventually. Can you really handle that? Repent now and heed this warning so that you don't give way to it. The hope here, I think with Paul and with myself, is that this would scare all of us. Right? I want us to be scared so that we don't let any kind of foothold of sexual sin into our lives from lust on down the line. No, we run, we battle, we fight. Look, when Christians are immoral, the consequences are drastic because amongst everything else, the testimony of the gospel is then polluted. So when Christians commit sexual sin, God will judge us because He's holy, righteous, and just, and He desires a holy people whose lights aren't tarnished and dim and dirty, but bright and pure and holy. So this is a warning to us. The Lord is the avenger of all such. One commentator gave this dire warning. He said, how will God avenge sexual sin? It could be in the unfulfilling sexual life and marriage. It could be by bringing about a miserable marriage or even allowing a divorce. It could be in temporal chastening or discipline through a sexually transmitted disease. He could avenge by bringing about negative circumstances, an absence of blessing, a plethora of trials and trouble. Sexual sin could and most likely will result in the loss of eternal reward in some measure. This section of Scripture is a solemn warning indeed, given the torrid temptations in our sex-sickened society and the prevalence of illicit sexual activity in the evangelical community. While it's true that the Christian is not under condemnation, it's also true that he's not free from the harvest of sorrow that comes when we sow to the flesh. That's right. Lord, help us to heed this severe warning and to save ourselves from a harvest 
of sorrow. Note this. No sin is beyond God's forgiveness. Right? Right? Praise the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 graciously promises if we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners and yet he found mercy at the cross. So the call for all of us is to flee to Jesus right now. To to heed this warning and to repent. Be scared so that you don't go down this road. And if you've gone down this road and you have repented, praise the Lord. Now move on for the glory of God. Put that behind you and move on and honor Him today accepting His mercy and forgiveness and glorify Him out of love for how amazingly good He is to sin like us and then guard yourself so that you battle this sin instead of give way to it for your own good for the good of others and for the good of god and the people of god all right second realize that god has not called us to uncleanness we've already seen that but paul says it yet again for a reason so that it gets into our thick skulls uncleanness is from the greek word akatharsia which literally means worthless material refuse or waste Here it describes a state of moral impurity in thought, word, or deed. The word medically referred to an infected, oozing wound. The word was also used to describe the decaying flesh in a grave. And that's what uncleanness and sexual sin is like in the believer. Right? It's never good. No, it it makes you filthy. It destroys and it stinks you up. (laughs) But that's not who we are in Christ. No, that's not how we are to live. Sadly, we all know some stinky, smelly Christians in this area. And they do no good to no one. In fact, they often do more harm than good. Please don't be like that. Please don't be a hypocrite. Don't claim to love Christ and yet dishonor Him with a dirty life. Of course, no one's perfect, but our aim is clear, right? Our, our love is clear. Our direction is clear. We battle sin, not indulge it. We fight sin, right? Not revel in it. So out with the dirt. <laughs> out with everything that will stink you up, spiritually speaking. Out with that. And that includes our actions of the body as well as the thoughts and the mind. So no sexual wrongdoing, no premarital sex no extramarital sex no sexual sin or dirtiness of any kind no crudeness no no lewdness no lust indulged in no pornography in any way out with those things and all the other things that are included with that god cares about these things and he wants a pure people who are pursuing him and his glory more and more and more And he doesn't want a stained dirty worldly soiled people and said look God has called us in holiness, in sanctification, in a life that battles sin and pursues the holy and God-pleasing life more and more and more. See, we now belong to God. And a life of impurity is now completely contrary to who we now are, to our high calling in Christ, and to where we are going. Right? God wants a holy people. And while he will indeed have a holy people one day in glory, he wants a holy people right now, right here, more and more. And therefore, that's what we must pursue because we love him. Anybody love him? We love him. This is who we are. This is what we do. We're children of God. Now think about that. We're the beloved 
Children of God who have been rescued, delivered, cleansed, forgiven, and made new. That's who we now are. So why would we ever want to go back to the darkness, to the dirtiness, the stain, the stench, the filth of what we once were? No, we we love Him. We walk to please Him. We pursue sanctification based on our love, like father, like son or daughter. We're children of God, and it should show more and more. And the question is, does it? Good question for all of us to ask. Third, don't reject this truth because if you reject this truth, then you're rejecting God. Verse 8, see how serious Paul is here? Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. This is extremely serious. The point here is crystal clear that anyone who rejects this instruction isn't simply despising the teaching of man, no, but instead he's defying, disregarding, flouting, and rejecting God himself. This is serious. Why did Paul feel the need to say this here? I mean, wasn't this already clear to the Thessalonian Christians? Yes. Because he says he's warned them about this a number of times. Yes, it was already clear to them. So why say it? To make that which was already clear even more clear. (laughs) Because it's so very important. Look, some here this morning will indeed spurn this message. Some will. They, they won't take what God says here nearly as seriously as they ought to. They won't heed the warnings here. No, they want their sin more than they want God. So they'll continue to indulge their sin in this area. Adultery, giving into their lust, immorality, impurity, looking at things that they shouldn't look at, not, not battling the lust of the eyes, going places they shouldn't go on and on and on. Go ahead! But please know that you're rejecting God when you do that. This is serious. Wake up. Right? This is serious. Mark my words. If you don't wake up, God will wake you up. It's usually painful when He does, but what a blessing. The pain is never worth that. Wake up. Now look, rejecting God isn't something that Christians do, right? And reject means to lay aside, to disregard, to ignore, to regard as nothing, to spurn and to despise. That's the opposite of love. This is what non-Christians do. A lifestyle of this rejection is a lifestyle of the unsaved soul very clearly. And Christians who do this are clearly in direct rebellion to everything that should mark them. We don't reject Him, no, we receive Him. We love Him. We listen to Him. We, we seek to honor Him. We seek to obey Him. Not, not reject Him. So, reject Him, it's a bad sign. Stop it now, or pay the price, which usually results in ruin to many, yourself, your family, your, your spouse, your future spouse, your children, on and on. Don't reject God today. No, listen to Him, and heed what He's saying here. See, if we, dis- if, if we regard sexual sin as a minor matter, We minimize the whole nature of God. We belittle Him, and that's not wise ever to do. True wisdom says to listen up and to heed the warnings in this passage. Look, the person who goes on sinning in this way sets himself up in the place of God and declares by his behavior and by his actions that what God has said is invalid, null, and void. And that, again, is a very serious thing. See, to refuse to recognize the validity of his call and claim on our lives is to annul God in our lives. You say you love him, and yet you continue to indulge in that sin. That's just empty words. 
That's empty words. No, true Christians fight for the holy and God-pleasing life. They, they don't cast God aside, no. They don't love the sin which God hates. The good news in all this is that God has given us His Holy Spirit to help us and to give us His divine power so that we don't have to be enslaved to sin, but instead so that we can overcome it more and more and more. And so our amazing God has not left us alone in this battle. Amen? Right? He has not left us alone. And that's the fourth thing. God has given us His Holy Spirit, the end of verse 8. So here's the thought. How can one who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God Himself, how can one indulge in sexual sin and not battle fiercely against it? One who has the Spirit of God in him or her. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, writing to true believers. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So God, the spirit indwells every true Christian and he changes everything. Therefore, battle sin and pursue holiness because you certainly can now that you have God's spirit living in you. All right, who's the Holy Spirit? The word holy is a giveaway for only God is truly holy in and of himself. The Holy Spirit is God, namely God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. See, the Bible is very clear that we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As our doctrinal statement states, we believe that there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing Spirit, Perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. And that's right. Another has written this. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. And that's important because there's an old heresy out that says, God is the Father in the Old Testament, and then God changes his form and he becomes God the Son in the New Testament and, and then uh, in the Gospels specifically. And then he changes his form yet again and he became the Holy Spirit in Acts and beyond. You know what that's called? That's called modalism. It's called heresy. Because the Bible is clear that from all eternity, God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons. A mystery to us, yes, but true and biblical nonetheless. Look, the Bible's very clear that the Father is God, and that's not a problem for most. We understand that. The Bible's also very clear that Jesus is God, and that's a problem for some, but it's biblical. In Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is called the mighty God. John 1, 1, the word Jesus was God. Acts 20, 28 mentions the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. On and on it goes. The Bible's clear. Jesus is God. And then the Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal, a divine attribute. Psalm 139, 7 through 10 tells us that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, another divine attribute. Luke 135 shows us that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, another divine attribute. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells us that the Holy Spirit is omniscient, another divine attribute. Psalm 103, 104.30 ascribes creation to the Holy Spirit because He's God, the Creator. In 1 Corinthians 12:4 through 6 it says, there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but the same God works in all them, in all men. So, 
Spirit, Lord, and God are used synonymously because they can be one God in three persons. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? Talking about God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We go on and on, but clearly the Holy Spirit is God and that's important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a God. He is God. He's a he, as much as an actual person. A he, as either God the Son and God the Father, is a he. That's important to understand because it goes to the nature of God. Edwin Palmer noted this. One of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is his belief in the Holy Spirit as a person. Many so-called Christian preachers and theologians refer to the Spirit as an it and not as a he. They consider him to be an impersonal influence or, or power or energy, not God, not the third person of the Trinity. Such a view would rob us of some of the great blessings of our salvation. Furthermore, it's not biblical. It also robs God a bit of his glory when we fail to recognize who he truly is. So again, the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Godhead, a distinct person who is worthy of our worship, of our love, of our praise, just as much as the Son and the Father are. What then does he do? He lives in us. He's our helper. That's what he does. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Immediately after that, in the next verse, Jesus says, I'm going to pray to the Father and he's going to give you another helper. Who? God, the Holy Spirit. And look, Just as Jesus was the comforter, helper, teacher, and counselor to the disciples while he was with them, once he leaves, look, the Holy Spirit will come and fill that vacancy, doing for the disciples everything that Jesus had done for them while he was with them on the earth. The real difference being that the Holy Spirit would now minister from within the Christian, praise the Lord, and just as Christ ministered to from without. It's incredible. He lives in us, and his goal is to help us. Help us to what? Help us to powerfully live out our faith and to honor Christ until glory. So biblically, he saves us, he seals us, he helps us until we arrive safely home. Hey, without the Holy Spirit, no one would be saved. Without him living in us as Christians, none of us would be able to have any kind of power over sin. But with him, power. Power to see this thing through in growing measure and to the very end. In Acts 1.8, just before Jesus leaves his disciples, he says these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Talking about divine power here. Okay, power to what? Very simple. Power to live for God, for the glory of God. Power to honor God, to witness for God, to fight sin. To be bold for God, to grow in our holiness more and more, to be strong and to arrive safely home in glory. No way we could do that without His power, but with Him and with His divine power, which every Christian has, man, we can turn the world upside down. We can battle well. We can do great damage to the wicked one. We can please God more and more and more, and we should. He lives in us. Picture it like this, and you might remember this illustration. An army sitting down before a rock fort, and they intend to bash that fort down. We might ask them, how are you going to do it? They point to a cannonball. 
but there's no power in a cannonball, right? I mean, it's heavy. It's really heavy. And even if all the men in the army picked up that cannonball and hurled that cannonball against the fort, it's not going to do any damage. They say, no, but look at the cannon. But there's no power in a cannon. A child can play on a cannon. A bird can sit on a cannon. I mean, it's a machine and it's nothing more. But, but look at the powder, they say. But again, there's no power in the powder. I mean, you can spill it. You can get it all over yourself and it won't really matter. You just wash it off. But think about it. This powerless powder, the powerless ball, uh, they're put into this powerless cannon. And look, one spark of fire enters it, and then that powder is a flash of lightning, and that ball is a thunderbolt that crashes into that rock fort and brings it crashing down to the ground. So it is with the people of God. See, we are powerless in and of ourselves, but the Spirit in us is the fire that ignites us and gives us power for the Christian life, for overcoming, for enduring to the end, for honoring Christ more and more with our fading lives. And again, God has given us everything that we need to grow and to overcome. And the question is, will we use His divine means of growing and of walking in the Spirit? His Word prayer, and one another. Will we use the means that He's given to us? Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the proof that the Spirit of God is living and thriving in your life. What is that? What's the first fruit? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we see a Christian growing in those areas, then we are seeing the reality of the Spirit working in a true believer. So, when we have difficulties, the Holy Spirit gives us direction. When we don't understand a portion of Scripture, the Holy Spirit helps us. When we're depressed, the Holy Spirit comforts us. One said the Spirit pulls back the hand of the saint when he would touch the forbidden thing. He prompts a child of God to make a covenant with his eyes. He binds the Christian's feet lest they should walk down a slippery path. He restrains the Christian heart and keeps him from temptation. And I say, thank you, Holy Spirit. We should love, passionately love the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Without Him, we're nothing. We're nothing. Use the means, please. Use the means God has given you. Let's walk in this great power that we all have in Christ for the glory of our amazing God who saved us from wrath. He's worthy. And His children who love Him will hate all sin, will battle sin fiercely, and we will pursue the God-honoring life with passion, fervor, and zeal, compelled by fervent love for our amazing God. May that describe all of us here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word of truth, and thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. Thank you for giving us your Spirit who lives in us and who helps us and who convicts us and who comforts us in so many amazing ways. I pray that we wouldn't quench the Spirit who indwells us, but that we would fan Him into flame more and more and more when we battle sin and read the Word, and encourage one another, and uh, pursue the God-honoring life. Lord, convict us where we need convicting. Thank you for that conviction. Help us to respond to that in a God-honoring way, because we love you, and because you are worthy. Bless us now as we go out. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.